G'day everyone. I am, uh, if you know me, a pretty simple bloke. Uh, I am definitely not a very cultured bloke. Uh, You could just ask my wife. I am far more at home on the lounge watching the footy and the cricket than I am in an art gallery, say, Um, which is why the Central Coast is a pretty good fit for me. But I I do like art, and uh, and I'm looking at some artists out there going, there's so much there I know that I haven't tapped into. I discovered a new artist for me this week that I want to tell you about. His name's Makoto Fujimura. Um, Yeah, wow. Who was that? Yeah, someone who appreciates art. Um, This is one of his paintings, which is called The Four Holy Gospels. And so I I looked at some of his art and I was quite impressed. But the only reason I came across him and the reason I'm starting with him this morning is because of something he said in a conference speech that I heard him say. And he, he said that when someone comes up and stands in front of one of his paintings, he will come up to them and say, you will not see my paintings for about 20 minutes. Be like, hang on, I thought it was... Because you have to behold them. You have to let your mind settle to remove anxieties and distractions and troubles and take a deep breath and behold which sounds like something an artist would say, right? (laughs) But even for a cricket-loving, footy-loving bogan like me, I can appreciate that if I was to stand in front of that, there would be much more there than just a quick glimpse would offer. That it would actually take work to stand in front of it to do what he says. Now, the reason I start with that is because when I heard him say that, I'm like, that is true of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That, that a quick glimpse just won't cut it. That you actually need to stand in front of it to remove distractions, to behold it. Which is a lifetime of beholding. But particularly when we come to the core events of the gospel. The gospel is news about what has happened in history around the man Jesus Christ. We're going to do that this morning as we come to the event Of his resurrection. That I want to kind of stand and and stand long enough that we might actually behold more of what the resurrection of Jesus means. Now, there's a number of things that you can get from looking at the resurrection a little bit more quickly, which is still important to do. We do a lot of this in other places, but you could look at the resurrection and see well, okay, it means there is a life beyond. If a man has been raised from the dead, then there is more than just this life. YOLO is wrong. You could find that conclusion. You could go, okay, there are plenty of evidences to back up the trustworthiness of the Christian claim. So that this holy scripture of the Bible that we come to is not just one of many holy scriptures. This is one that is actually reporting what happened in history that you can now investigate, push and prod to see whether it really stands up. And we spend a whole lot of time looking at those evidences in other places. But this morning I want to do something different. I want to look at the resurrection of Jesus, but by taking a a different angle to doing that, uh, that we might, I trust, behold it uh, for more and more of what it is. Now, to do that, we need to get two categories in our mind, two Bible categories, actually two realms 
Now, two realms is like talking about two environments, two different atmospheres. Like you've got the very thin atmosphere on the moon, which is very different to the atmosphere of Earth. They're, they're two realms, right? So the Bible, it, it unconsciously has these categories in mind, but we are slower to understand them. So we just need to pull them out and, and see them. They're two realms, they're two world orders, if you like. They're also two ages, periods of time. Like you have the Bronze Age, the Iron Age, the Industrial Age. You have two biblical ages, which are the realm, the age of the flesh and the spirit. The realm of the flesh, the realm of the spirit. This passage captures it for us in Romans chapter 8. The mind governed by the flesh is death. But the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. Do you see? Two realms, two categories. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, this is written to Christians, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. Do do you see these two realms that the Bible operates with? The realm of the Spirit, the realm of the flesh. The realm of the flesh is one that is marked by sin, hostility towards God, death. Sin, struggle, death. Everything painful in your life stems from belonging to the realm of the flesh. Every problem that you see further out in the world is because we live in the world order of the flesh. Sin, hostility towards God, death. So why injustice? Why greed? Why do we hurt the ones that we love the most? Why is my job so hard? Why does cancer come, mental illness come? Why does death rip away those who are precious? Well, the Bible has a very clear answer. It's because that is the way of the atmosphere of the realm of the flesh. It's how it is. It's how things work. It's like asking, why can't I breathe on the moon? Well, because that very thin atmosphere doesn't support the lungs. So so it's a world order. It's a realm. It's... It's, um, it, well, it's a darkness as it's presented, but it's also an age. So when does this realm of the flesh start, finish? Well, as we've recently found out working our way through Genesis, it starts two pages into our Bible, right? What's called the fall, where humanity made to know God in spirit, to, to know the blessings of the spirit age, the, the, the spirit of life and peace, rejects, rebels and falls into the realm of the flesh where sin, struggle, death is the order of life. And so it shouldn't take much work to work out that realm continues today as we live in a world order with sin, struggle, death. The realm of the spirit, however as we saw, is one that is marked by life and peace. 
Who doesn't long for life that is truly life, that is truly living, that knows deep peace? Well, the Bible is very clear. You can have it. You can have life that is truly life, that actually is victorious over the greatest enemy, death. There are two realms. But here's the thing, and we've got to get this really clear, and we've got to keep saying it. We do not climb our way up from the realm of the flesh to the realm of the spirit. There is nothing that we can do to know the life that we long for, that we were made for. We are held enslaved and bondaged to the realm of the flesh. Oh, we can tweak and play around at the edges, sure. But we know our life individually and as a society and globally that is marked by sin, struggle, hostility towards God, death. We need salvation. We desperately need to be saved from the realm of the flesh. So, there's something of the two categories, and as you have them in mind, you'll see them now all the way through particularly the New Testament, which we are going to come to. But before we get to that... I want to do a a long run-up towards the event of the resurrection. Um, I I want us to actually uh, kind of have a long view that will help us appreciate why the resurrection of Jesus. So, let's do that by dipping back all the way into Isaiah. Now, normally I'd want to say, go here, I'm going to cover a lot of passages, so they're going to come up on the screen. Um, Isaiah is a prophet who is living in the 8th century before Jesus. This is a long, long time before the 1st century, right? And he finds himself in the real world, and so a world marked by sin, struggle, hostility to God, death. But Isaiah is one of the prophets that God particularly starts to make promises of salvation to. Have a look at this one, verse 3 of Isaiah 44. For I, says the Lord, will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. A picture of life out of death, which will come by God pouring out his spirit. What we have here is the promise of the spirit realm of the spirit age. Now, Isaiah particularly helpfully starts bringing some shape to this promise. How is it going to come? Well, it's going to come by a someone. Someone is actually going to come carrying this spirit realm, almost like picturing a seedling with some soil and some water into a desert to plant it, to water it, to give it life. The Lord says, Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. So we have the promise of a spirit realm. We now have the promise that someone, a him, a spirit anointed him, is going to be the one who brings it. Who is this spirit anointed servant becomes the question. Because these words are spoken to a real group of people in history and they start to wonder, well, who is this one? 
that God has chosen, that God will delight in, that God will put his spirit on. And so they start to watch, they start to look. Will it be the kings of Israel, who after all are called to be anointed by God, to rule on behalf of God? And you very quickly work out, no. Because even the best ones were adulterers, murderers, idolaters. We quickly work out through history that it's not going to be these kings. In fact, things go from bad to worse from the people of God of this time. They're actually booted out of their land. They're exiled. And they're living in exile, which is pictured like death. So we actually get this word to the people through the prophet Ezekiel, who is with them in exile, booted out of the land. But the promise of the spirit realm continues to come. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones, because he's given, do you remember, a vision of the valley of bones? Ezekiel, we looked at it a couple of weeks ago, just sees this whole valley of death. This is what the Sovereign Lord says to these bones, I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. We looked at this two or three weeks ago. Do you remember the Hebrew word for breath there means spirit as well? So I, the Lord, will make spirit enter you to bring life, which makes sense of what he goes on to say in verse 13. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and bring you up from them. I mean, just pause on that image for a moment. It's quite a, quite a striking, vivid image. Isn't it? I'm going to open your grave where you decompose and rot. I'm going to bring you up for them. I will put my spirit in you and you will live. I'll settle you in your own land and you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and have done it, declares the Lord. Now, this is spoken to a people who are exiled. Is it a metaphor? Well, in one sense, yes. Because what we find is that 70 years later, they actually come back to the promised land, centred around Jerusalem and Judea. They actually are metaphorically taken up out of the grave of exile, brought back into the land of life. But we pretty quickly work out that, no, 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 this, this is a people who are now back in the land who still sin, struggle, die in fact other powers come and oppress and oppose and this is not the realm of the spirit and so what we find here is that this is actually a prophecy of God a promise of God that extends beyond what is going on in ancient Israel yet the promise of this spirit age is repeated and extended as you track your way through the Old Testament. What we're doing here is just taking a very high view. If you've ever wondered, I mean, what's the point of all of this stuff that comes before Jesus? There's a lot, but one of them is to set us up to make sense of Jesus. As this promise of the spirit age continues, continues, it's now repeated and extended by Joel, who says, afterward, this is the Lord, I will pour out my spirit on all people, your sons and daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. The point here is that the gift of the spirit, the realm of the spirit, is going to be for everyone. Not just the religious figure of the prophet, the priest, the king, but for everyone. And not just for a particular ethnic people of Israel, but, verse 32, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who, who calls on the Lord, who, 
who knows the life that the Lord gives in the Spirit will be saved. This is then a promise that hangs and hangs and hangs and hangs. There's some 500 years where the people who have received this promise watch sin, struggle, death. Sin, struggle, death. And so what, what happened is that a very strong longing was developed among the people, a longing for the Messiah. Have you heard of the term Messiah? There's this, there's this expectation and longing for the Messiah, who is the one that God had promised will come poured out by his Spirit to bring the Spirit room. And so there's this expectation from the Old Testament as generation and generation rolls on. We are a culture that has pretty much lost the art of waiting and longing, haven't we? I mean, Amazon, there the next day. Um, Pretty much anything and everything on demand. Uh, We have largely lost this art of longing. Uh, Even our kids, when Brie and I tell them about the days when we started dating, um, Brie lived in Port Macquarie, I was in Sydney, and we tell them that the only way to communicate, there's no text, there's no WhatsApp, we would write letters. We would put them in an envelope, in a box, wait days for it to arrive. Their heads just explode at this thought. They're like, didn't you have a phone? And we're like, yeah, it was the family phone attached to the wall next to the dinner table. Yeah, and the whole family could hear. And so we wrote and we waited and we longed and we knew the joy of expectation and arrival. That, by the way, is what the season of Advent is trying to work in us. And I actually think this is particularly helpful for us in an age that has lost the art of waiting. Advent, which starts soon, the month leading up to Christmas, which at its best is intended to to stir this longing that we're looking at here. This longing for a people trapped in the realm of the flesh of sin, struggle, death, for the coming spirit realm. One of the ways, as parents, we've found really helpful is just one of those Advent calendars, count down the days, got different names, Bible verses of Jesus. Do what you've got to do, parents, to, to, to teach our kids this sense of longing, of arrival. Because some 500 years after these prophecies that we've been looking at, Jesus comes. Born of a virgin. How does that work? says Mary the Virgin. Well, she's told, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Here is a child, but here is no mere child. Here is the eternal Son of God who has come in to the realm of the flesh, who then takes on our form and identifies with us. You see that clearly at his baptism. He's now about the age of 30, where Jesus goes to the Jordan to be baptised by John and we read, Heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove and a voice came from heaven, You are my son, whom I love, with you I am well pleased. And with what we've looked at, we're supposed to hear the echoes of? Tell me, what are we supposed to hear? 
The servant song. The promise through Isaiah. Here is that spirit-anointed servant carrying the realm of the spirit, the realm of life and peace. Now, why is he being baptised? Because baptism was, after all, symbolism of washing away of sin. Why is the eternal Son of God having sin washed away? Of course, he's not. He's rather identifying with sinners, with those of the flesh. Romans 8 verse 3 says, God sent his Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. See what's being said there? The eternal perfect God has come into the realm of the flesh, the likeness of. He's lived in its atmosphere. He's taken on the form without contributing one little bit to the evil of this age. That is a very important distinction which becomes clear in the very next scene after his baptism where Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. I'm hoping we're starting to see a theme here, which is the theme of the Spirit of God, the Spirit of life and peace, the Spirit who has power over death, sin, Satan, the devil, because by the power of the Spirit, Jesus resists. He refuses to fall into the clutch of the realm of the flesh so that willingly and out of love and according to the plan of God, he would fall into the clutch of the flesh, which was last week. How we zoomed in on the death of Jesus, which achieved atonement. We have been made holy set apart that is people of the flesh sin struggle satan hostility we've been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of jesus christ once for all his death on the cross was as a substitute a once for all sin offering that would cover over the sin of the guilty the only means that god would forgive sin and forgive sin justly The only way to remove the sin of those people of the the, the flesh as far as the east is from the west. The cross is at the heart of God's work to save us, which is what we beheld last week, what we focused and stood in front of last week. But with the journey that we've been on, do you see there must be more? God's plan of salvation has more to come. If you're a Lord of the Rings fan, it's like it's one thing to put out the fires of Mordor that rage and consume. Imagine putting out the fires of Mordor. It's then another thing to go and plant Hobbiton for the green grass to grow and the huts and houses to be built for the families to dwell for the farming to happen, for life and peace. The cross of Jesus is at the heart of God's work to save, to deal with the problem of our sin, that he stands under our judgment for us, gone. But there's more. And there's more that's been long anticipated as the realm of the Spirit would come, as God would pour out the Spirit on all people to bring them into a world of life, 
and peace, a realm of life and peace. And it's with that run-up that we can now look at the event three days after the cross. All of that is something of an introduction to prepare us for the resurrection, the day when it was found that the tomb was empty, that a dead man who was decomposing had been raised to life bodily and physically and publicly and never to die again. Why? What's the significance? Well, Peter picks that up for us in that speech. Have a look at Acts chapter 2 that was read for us. There is so much good stuff here that we won't have time to look at. But what we do have here is the first recorded Christian sermon. And what's worth noting is that it is preached by a man named Peter who just a few weeks earlier was hiding in a lounge room with the rest of his disciples scared out of his brain. Hiding from the very people that he now gets up in front of in the city square and proclaims this sermon. What's happened? Well, he tells us what happened. Why the change? Well, he tells us why the change. A little bit of context again, just very quickly, is helpful. In the start of chapter 2, we find what's described as the day of Pentecost, which is a Jewish uh, religious holiday. But on that day, God poured out his spirit as he has promised. So that the, the first apostles start actually speaking in languages other than their native tongue. I mean, we heard of Chris struggling with the language of Malta. <laughs> These apostles, boom, in an instant, start speaking languages from all other different nations. And we know that because they're, they're in Jerusalem and there'd been all these people from the nations gathered for this holiday, who now start hearing these apostles speaking in their native tongue. They're like, what is happening? We are hearing the wonders of God in our native tongue. Now, some people are in awe. Others mock and scoff and say, these guys are drunk. These apostles are drunk. But Peter gets up, verse 14, raised his voice and addressed the crowd, fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain to you, listen carefully, these people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In these last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. What's he saying? That promise of God made centuries ago through the prophet Joel, it's happened. It's here. The spirit has been poured out. The spirit realm, the spirit age is here. And it's here for all people, indicated by the languages for all the nations. This is not just for the ethnically Jewish men and women. This is for all people. Why has this happened? Well, verse 32, we need to skip over a lot for time, but here is his reason. Though... Take it at verse 31, actually. Seeing what was to come, this is David. He spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. 
There is the reason for what has happened with the Spirit being poured out. There is the reason for Peter's boldness to stand up in front of the people that he was running scared from and declare this message. What is it? God has raised this Jesus to life. They saw him with their own eyes. They touched him. They ate with him. Again, there are all these evidences that you can explore. He continues on. God raised him to life, verse 33. Exalted to the right hand of God. This resurrected Jesus has been installed at the right hand of God. What does that mean? Well, to be God's right hand man. This is the fulfilment of God promising to rule over the spirit realm through his spirit king. Seated at the right hand of God. What else? He, the resurrected, exalted Jesus, has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit. We, we, we've heard the promise of the Spirit, the promise of the Spirit realm, the promise of life and peace to those entrapped by death. And what does Jesus, who's received this Spirit, do? He has poured out what you now see and hear. Jesus is the one who pours out the spirit realm, but only because he is the resurrected Lord of life. Do you see that there is so much more to the resurrection than just, oh, there must be a life to come after this one? Or even that there's evidences that I can talk... So good. The resurrection is bound up with the work of Jesus on the cross to save us. So much so that, and I've got Calvin, if you know who he is on my side here, that when the Bible speaks only of the death of Jesus, it has in its mind his resurrection. When the Bible speaks only of his resurrection, it has also in its mind his death. Do you see that the resurrection of Jesus is firstly foremostly, supremely about who he is. The Lord of life, the promised spirit servant who would bring the age of the spirit, who would bring salvation for those who are entrapped in the realm of the flesh. The resurrection, it has all sorts of implications for us. I'm going to touch on a couple of them and we're going to spend more time in coming weeks. But firstly, foremostly, it's about who Jesus is. The Lord's Messiah, Saviour, the only name given to anyone and everyone in the realm of the flesh by which they might be saved. That's the big thing about Jesus' resurrection. It must have happened because God had promised an age of the Spirit, that he would rise and pour out that Spirit. But three quick things about what it does mean for us today. And in one sense, we're going to be teasing out more about what the resurrection of Jesus means for us in the coming weeks. Justification, adoption, sanctification, glorification. We're going to be covering all of these blessings come to us only in the realm of the Spirit. And that realm of the Spirit only came as Jesus was raised to life. First thing that it means for us, though, is assurance. It means that we can have confidence 
that we are saved. We can have confidence that we have been taken out of the realm of the flesh into the realm of the spirit. Why? Because salvation happens outside of you. This is why it's the most glorious news. I mean, is there any dimension of life that we have not stuffed up as humans? And if you could point me to one, it's because we haven't put our grubby fingers on it yet. We, we stuff up everything we touch. The glory of the news of Jesus is that our salvation is not up to us. It has been achieved outside of us. Now we can look to the death and resurrection for sure, but we can see that even further, God has been over centuries unfolding his plan of salvation. We can have confidence that it's not how well you've lived this week that you can be saved. You can look outside of yourself to a saviour, throw yourself on him by faith. You can have assurance, you can have confidence. You can have confidence that the cross really did do what God said that it did. We looked at it last week. That your sin is fully and finally paid for. The resurrection vindicates what Jesus has achieved. That the fires have been put out. That there is new life. You can have confidence to speak to those around you about a living Lord. Do you notice that's what the pouring out of the Spirit empowers these first disciples to do? To witness. People who are self-confessed cowards all of a sudden, not because they're any better. What's the difference? The death, resurrection, ascension and pouring out of the Spirit of Jesus. The Spirit of God now lives in them. The same Spirit that lives in you if you look to Jesus as your Saviour. Friends, take confidence that a Muppet like yourself, like Peter, can witness to the glory of the Gospel. That there is only sin, bondage and death if we keep going. But there is salvation, there is life. Have confidence. Let that drive you as you talk to your friends with the survey that we've put out as you invite people along to the things over summer second thing the resurrection of jesus means awareness Um, again we will do more work on this in the coming weeks about what flows from salvation but one thing that is helpful is to actually become aware of the age in which we live Um, see There is the realm of the flesh that began at the fall, which continues through our day. It's going to stop. God set a day. He's going to wrap up history. When did the age of the Spirit start? Well, as the Son of God entered into the realm of the flesh, Jesus. But in a sense, it's only Jesus who is carrying the realm of the Spirit. His death and resurrection then means the pouring out of the Spirit, to those in the flesh, that we might be rescued into the realm of the Spirit now. Right now, we had it read for us earlier, seated in the heavenlies with Christ. We will tease this out more in the coming weeks. But every spiritual blessing that we have is because we belong to the Spirit age. But here's the thing. We overlap these realms, these ages, This is not who we are anymore, and so we are called to live as those who are of the Spirit. 
those of righteousness, of life, of peace. And yet, understanding this helps us make sense of our experience of sin continuing, struggle continuing, temptation continuing, death continuing. Why? Well, because this age continues. But it'll come to an end. And it'll come to an end as the resurrected Lord comes, wraps up history and ushers in the new heavens and the new earth, the realm of the Spirit. And only those who have looked to him as a saviour here will be welcomed. And so uh, understanding these categories, the resurrection, helps us understand something of our experience. We are not these people anymore. We are these people. So why do I keep... That's because... I'm overlapping these ages. The third thing that the resurrection of Jesus means for us, therefore, as we await this day when the realm of the flesh is done with, there is great comfort. Because not only does the resurrection of Jesus guarantee that the end will come, it guarantees that he will get you there safely. See, Jesus is the resurrected Lord of life who now rules over you now, who holds onto you now. I know it's a gross thought, but imagine holding on to the hand of a dead person who decomposed, oh, but holding on to a living Lord who actually is holding on to you. Oh, there is great comfort. Because we worship, we follow not just a dead man of history, but a living Lord who will shepherd his sheep to the end. Another image that the New Testament gives is Colossians verse 1. It says, he, that's Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. The resurrected Jesus is the head you, if you are trusting in him, his people, are the body. If you fall off a very high cliff down into a raging river underneath, what is the difference between you living and you drowning? Well, it's that your head comes above the water and breathes. I'm alive. I'm very wet. I'm travelling down this river, but I'm alive. I'm breathing. Friends, the resurrected Jesus is the head raised to life in heaven. You, his body, you might feel like you are saturated, you're under the water. But your head lives, your head breathes, and you are joined to him. When you're in that river, you're not worried that your, your legs, your arms, your body is getting saturated. Your head is above water. The resurrection of Jesus is a great comfort for us now, as it does feel like, the water hammers us because our Saviour is outside of ourselves. He lives as God's Spirit King, God's Spirit Messiah, the one who pours out the Spirit, therefore the one who holds on to you, the one who will bring you home. 
What a glorious message the gospel is, which causes us to look outside of ourselves and to stand and to keep looking and to keep beholding and to go deeper. I want you to just take a moment to reflect on what you've heard. As the band comes up, I'll then pray for us in a moment. Father, as the sirens blare outside and drive past, it is a reminder of the reality of this age, this realm of the flesh, of our part in it and our desperate need to be rescued out of it. And so we praise you, Lord Jesus. And as we have attempted to to stand and to keep standing and beholding, we ask, please, that you might apply this word deep into our minds and our hearts and so transform our lives that you would shore us up that you have saved us that your death stands in our place that you would shore us up that you are the living Lord who will hold on to us that you would shore us up to share this news with those around us that you would comfort us particularly as we feel the tragic effects of the realm of the flesh. We praise you, the living Lord, our head, that in you we live, that in you we will always live. Again, please change our lives because of this. Amen.